0: main series, our our big series on Corinthians. And uh, and I wonder, do you you remember what's going on here? What we've previously found out in this series, if you've not been here, is that Corinth is, in many ways, a city that is like Liverpool. It was the Liverpool of the ancient world. Guy, if you just click on a few. We find out it was a, a coastal trade city, that it was famous for sports, that like Liverpool, it was in economic recovery. It had been rocked by a Roman invasion a few years before, and when we pick up the story, it's, it's just starting to grow and find its feet again. And it was a place of many, many faiths. It was a multi-faith, multi-belief city. So we've got this dock city, love sports, in economic recovery, that, um, that is full of different beliefs and faiths, very similar to, uh, to Liverpool. And if you click on, go on. And the church we've learned in Corinth, was also very similar in age to Freedom's Church. In 50 AD, it started well, it started to multiply and uh, and grow, but thankfully, unlike Freedom Church, we've just found we've hit three years. We found out that three years on, something had happened to the church in Corinth, that it was struggling massively, that actually divisions and breaking had set in, and the church, like its light had started to become stifled. Where it started really great, it had started to crack and fall apart. And that's where Paul writes 1 Corinthians into. He writes it to this church of that is, that is struggling with all kinds of different issues. And what he speaks to it about is like, how to deal with these issues. And in doing so, he teaches us today how not to fall down like they have, how to... Shine bright and keep shining bright with his gospel goodness and truth. As a community, as we grow, and so there's tons for us to learn. And we have so far, um, we've so far um, hit a few of the major issues that he, that he's hit in Corinth. A few of those things that are dividing the church. Um, there's been all kinds of things that we've dealt with um, so far, including sexual promiscuity and false leaders, all these different things that are causing the, the church to break. And now we're coming on to uh, the next issue that he hits. Over the next three sessions, we're going to be looking at this in 8 to 10. Um, and I've called it Kingdom Advances in the Borderlands or Advancing the Kingdom in the Borderlands. But we could also as easily call it, you know, how do we live in a multi-faith city? How do we engage with other faiths and cultures as Christians? And I just want to pray again before we get started this morning. Father God, we just want to thank you so much for your word, and we want to thank you so much for the message to the Corinthians, Lord. And Father, we thank you so much for all the warnings in there, all the lessons in there, Father God, all the life for us as a church in there. And this morning, Spirit, we pray that you would just cause your word to dive deep into our uh, being, Lord Jesus, Father God, that we would truly, as we grow as a church in this city, keep just shining bright with the goodness of you, keep communicating you and your kingdom, keep growing your kingdom with all that we do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're Christians. We know what actually being saved feels like. We know the blessing that that brings you into, the security that brings you. We know the joy of the Holy Spirit. We know the, the truth of the message of God. Now the next question is, how then do we live that out in a world that does not know God? God and a world where there are cultures that are actually actively uh, against God in many ways, that would say, no, that is not truth, and would ask for us to compromise, or actually might be doing things that are reprehensible to God. How do we live as salt and light in these places? And this is a question that has challenged the church since its birth over 2,000 years ago, and is still challenging it today. Because ever since Jesus came, the kingdom of heaven has started growing on, on earth in and through the church. And just like any earthly kingdom, this has meant two things that there are two main spaces. This has meant one, that in this kingdom there are some heartland places, some safe places where Actually, the culture of heaven is worked out, like within the church, where everybody you know is living and striving for the same thing to worship and honor God with their lives. These are great places, aren't they? We come and we just feel refreshed and we praise God together and we encourage one another and we build each other up. These are like the heartlands of the kingdom. But also, you get these places. Do you see that on my slightly fuzzy outworking here? These are the borderlands, the places where the kingdom of heaven comes up against other cultures, other kingdoms around it, those that it's looking to advance the kingdom of God into. And these places are naturally far more challenging. We come up against different belief systems, some of which are like I've said, completely against God's kingdom rule and reign. And we have they cause questions for us, don't they? Like how do I live in this space And build my life in this space and live out being salt and light in this place and reach these people and truly build relationship with people of these cultures without also watering down my witness, without compromising on my faith. They raise difficult questions for us. Do you know these difficult places? Do you recognise them? These borderlands where you meet with other cultures and people from other cultures. So how does the church, the kingdom of God, interact with these cultures that don't honour or live for Jesus? It's a big question for us. And I think it's fair to say, if you click on Guy, that the church has come up with three solutions historically to this. One would be to create laws about what we can and can't do. The Bible tells me this so I'll religiously do or not do it. And people will know I'm different in these spaces by the laws that I keep. And I'll be more or less pure for God by the laws I keep. That's one approach I think to these borderlands that the church has come up with. Secondly, we can hide. I think people have gone, wow, this this culture is just too, no, it's too impure, it's too difficult. I I'm gonna I'm gonna go off grid. I'm gonna remove myself from culture and those spaces. I don't want to be tainted by it. I want to be pure for God, so I'm gonna separate myself. And the third place would be probably to immerse ourselves. And I think it's probably a lot more where the church is at today, this approach to it. We can just dive into the culture of the day, knowing that we're under the full grace of God. We just go right in. We give no challenges to the culture around us. We just immerse ourselves in it so that we can build relationship. We stop asking each other if what we are living is right in our culture. Everything goes. I think it's a bit of a modern day individualistic approach. But what does the Bible have to say about this? Does it have anything to say about this? How do we live in these kingdom borderlands? Are these pathways, these three pathways, are are they right or are they wrong to do? How do we live in grace and freedom where things around us are still tainted without becoming tainted ourselves, losing our saltiness how do we advance the kingdom in this place and make sure what we're doing is growing God's kingdom, not hindering it? Do you know, it's to these really important questions that Paul's next essay in Corinth turns, so the next three chapters of the book of Corinthians turns. And when he addresses the next issue that's been dividing the church... So what is the the big issue that he starts to address in this space? Can you just click on? It's a really important one that I'm sure, like me, keeps you awake at night. It's the toil of your faith. It is, click on, should meat be eaten from food sacrificed to idols? I can't tell you the number of times I've had to pastor people who have been struggling with this issue. Just the other day, uh, Tom came to me. And he was like, Matt, Matt, oh Matt, I'm in turmoil. I'm just wondering if Nando is a, a god of Portuguese chicken. <laughs> Click on. And when I told him, yes, he's the god of overpriced, cheap, you know, self-service, make the customer do everything himself, chicken that should never be paid at the price, Tom was just like, oh no, can I eat it anymore? And it's not just Tom, Chris C.B. struggles with eating Mars bars. You know that because he knows that Mars was the god uh, of war in Rome. He's like, am I... You know, I'm, it's just not an issue we deal with, is it? It's just not one that keeps us awake at night. You know, may, maybe there's something in the growth of halal meat, you know, that, that this speaks to in our, in our culture. And as Islam grows, it might become like, more relevant again to us. But just because it's not something that we initially get the heart of, it's not something we should switch off to, there's a lot to hear here. Um, it's just that we have to work a little bit harder to see what's going on. You see, although this particular issue doesn't trouble us, this is a prime example of a borderland issue. It's a prime example of it. Click on. And was a prime example for for the church across the Roman Empire that had created in the conscience and heart of many believers absolute turmoil and strongly divided church communities was it better for Christians to keep eating meat to idols or not keep eating meat? Let me explain this a bit further. As we have said, Corinth was a multi-faith port city, like Liverpool, where many different gods and idols were worshipped, and many different belief systems were practised. And at the centre of Corinth, if we click on, what we'll see, and click, you can click twice... There was an agora, a market square, where pretty much every bit of life happened. It was the heart of the town, where the majority of the town's business was done. And this was surrounded, as you'll see, with all kinds of statues you click on, sorry. All kinds of temples and statues of different gods, absolutely surrounded by these temple places. And this had two big implications Firstly, that most of the meat sold in the markets was leftovers from animals that had been sacrificed in worship and prayer to other gods. This was especially true after feasts and large pagan festivals, where the market would become full of cheap meat. It was flooded with it, which was the only time that many of the poorer families in Corinth could get a good meal. Actually, it was the only time when the market was full of this meat that they could buy good meat and eat it but have a good diet. Secondly, this also meant that many of the key social events, festivals and times where the community came together, were all built around tributes to these many gods. And it was these occasions where high society would mix, where business and political influences created links, where social status was set up, To snub these appointments, these meetings, would be a serious risk to people's livelihood and their influence in the city. So to some degree, all segments of society revolved around this issue of temple food. If you want to live, work, and engage with reaching Corinth, in some way you had to engage with this issue. It was a borderland issue. But every time somebody went to one of these festivals or bought the meat or ate this meat, in reality, they were supporting financing and upholding the things that God, right the way through the Old Testament, life of the Jews, has said were deeply harmful to his kingdom life. What's more, you were coming into contact with idolatrous practices, practices and forms of worship that were designed to draw your heart away from God into things that are harmful like temple prostitution. Things that he had said were abominable for people to get involved in. Can you start to feel the debates that were going on here in the church? Can you feel the dilemmas that this would have created? Do we reject it? Run away from it? Or immerse ourselves in it and try to change it? And there would have been different supporting evidence for different arguments and discussions. It's food for the poor. We should encourage love for the poor. We've been encouraged to do that. We should get them eating this. God calls idol worship an abomination. We should leave it alone and set up somewhere else. Run away or make a law about it. We have to live in this city and do life here with business. If we're going to interact with them, we have to go into these spaces. We're under grace anyway. Not to eat meat had big consequences, to eat it potentially bigger. It was a live issue of a scale that parallels. Can you click on that guy? How we interact with some of the main borderland issues of our day. How do we view and handle money and wealth and possession in a world where people worship? these things? How do we interact with banks that have crooked investments but give us the interest rates we need? Or if you're short of cash, is getting a dodgy deal on the estate okay so that your kid can have those trainers and fit in? How do we interact with the media that worships promiscuous sex, violence and pushing boundaries that aren't healthy for us? Or outright against what God wants us to be putting into our hearts? Do we avoid the things that mean that we can hold a conversation with our peers in society? Or do we engage with it so that we can be relevant? What do we, what do, we do? Do we drink alcohol or not? This is a pastime that is at the heart of so many people's recreation, yet enables so many social problems to persist, and often takes place in temples of absolute debauchery. Do you know, I went out on a, 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 my brother-in-law's stag do for an evening down on Matthew Street. My goodness, like, flipping neck, like, by about half past ten, I had witnessed domestic violence. I'd witnessed like fights between men. I'd witnessed a bouncer drop-kicking a man out of his um, establishment. And I had tried by three different people to be canvassed to go into strip joints. And it was only when I said, look, I am a married pastor of a church. I am not going to go in here. There's no point in speaking to me that they finally left me alone. But should I be supporting the very thing that underpins that lifestyle and that problem in church it's a borderland issue isn't it but actually that's the place i'm going that people build relationship as well and be tricky to navigate have created huge debates and just as these have divided christians in our time these debates in Corinth what was happening was the different sections of the early church were responding to this issue of eating meat in different ways taking different stances on it which had become a point of disunity, another point of the church ripping apart. Another thing that was stifling the gospel in their hearts. For Jewish converts, such a practice had been strictly forbidden prior to their conversion, was just absolutely reprehensible. They were pulling away completely from this. For uh, some, it was just causing absolute confusion. Discomfort and fear on the matter, pagan converts who, prior to their becoming a Christian, had lived their lives in a way where all of their trust had been put into these idols. It all depended on their sacrifice, whether they were going to have a good day, a bad day, a good income, a bad income. They trusted these gods. And it was a point of temptation for them to redevote their lives to them. And some Christians who knew the gospel of grace meant that they were completely free and that God was their only God. And the idols were nothing compared to the greatness of God, were freely eating food, engaging with, with this life and trying to reach into this, to the city this way. They were claiming their right to live by grace and live free. Do you know, this probably, this view, this last one probably best reflects my background view. You know, I'm grace, do you know, Whoa, yeah, I'm free, yes, brilliant, I can claim my right to live free with God. You click on? So this is a major issue. Do you see that? With an abundance of different views. It wasn't clear cut. And Paul speaks this into this issue in chapter 8. What does he say? Let's read the chapter together. 8, 9, and 10 is all about this issue. Now concerning food to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something... and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, and for, all, for whom, whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things, and through whom we exist, are all things, and through whom we exist. Sorry, i got a bit excited by that. You can read it if it's not clear, as I splutter the word of God out. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple. Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother, and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Who does Paul support here? Which of these pathways does Paul support about the engagement with culture and this issue? Well, at first glance, he seems to be fully endorsing the camp that has chosen to eat from the food from idols. And he seems to shoot down the other two. In 4 to 8, he affirms this in the core of chapter 8, that the knowledge that those who are saved and mature in Christ should have in regard to idols is exactly what this group has been believing. We see this here. Therefore, as to the eating the food of idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It's like a tongue twister, but you get the point. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do eat. Here Paul completely affirms that because of the gospel and the reality of who God is, All believers should understand that these fake idols now have absolutely no power over the believer. And so eating the food that has been offered to them has no bearing on their or our lives. Our salvation and our security with him, you're totally secure. The Corinthians are indeed totally free to interact with this culture and eat this food without harm to their salvation or themselves. He also confirms that those who toil in the conscience over this matter, who still believe there is power and negative effect that these idols can exert over them, haven't quite grasped and understood the full grace, freedom and power for which God has rescued for us. This is a mighty, complete and total freedom. Total grace, total security, total power of God. He's the real God. They're the fake gods. This is what a mature believer should understand. So Paul completely endorses the understanding of the most exciting picture here, definitely, of this dive-in camp. Now, me, as I've said, my background, I'm about to get cocky as I read this. I'm grace-filled, I know the power of God, and Paul knows it too. He's about, he must be about to slam those who are weak and want to run away from these borderlands Back into their nice safe places or want to make rules. I can immerse myself in the culture and do whatever I want. Grace and power is the Lord's alone. Do you know what? If I was to preach this to you today, in matters of engaging with culture, I would be wrong and missing the whole point of this passage. Because as you look a little deeper, although Paul highlights that in one sense, their understanding of grace and the power of God is right on the money. He says it does not mean that in all cultural sections situations it is right for them to claim their right to act on this grace. Their knowledge is correct. Their way of living out that knowledge is totally wrong and misguided and lacking in understanding of the way that God wants us to use our freedom. Click on. And it is in fact this that arrogant grace approach that Paul begins here and will continue to challenge in the next couple of chapters to call us to be wary of following in our lives. How does he challenge this approach? Well, firstly, he does some groundwork in the Corinthians' minds. He gets the Corinthians thinking about two things, knowledge and love and the difference between them. And he draws two differences out. The first one is difference in their fruit. Now, concerning food offers to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Here he points out, like this lovely little puffer fish here, acting out of knowledge only serves to self-inflate make us feel bigger, better, and more accomplished than others. Where the fruit of acting out of love builds up. It builds up, builds everybody up. You know, I discovered this, the difference between these fruits um, when I was on, on holiday, actually. We've done a number of activities with our kids, running family rides and big walks over those two weeks away. We had a great time. In each of these activities, me and Becky had the knowledge that without a shadow of a doubt we could go faster than the kids. And in one of the walks that we did, um, my dad, Dad I can do it, had took over and I just started acting out of this knowledge, walking off into the distance and trying to show the kids that this was the way to do it. Kids, follow my example. Keep walking, don't moan, go faster. Keep up, you can do it. I've seen you run around, be like Dad. Thankfully, The Lord gave me a wife. And Becky, on the other hand, acted in a different way. She recognised what the kids needed um, to have a great experience on that day. And she slowed her pace right down to go at their pace. And challenged me to do the same as we walked as a family. Simply, had I continued doing what I was doing, I would have just highlighted the gap between me and my kids. Physical ability. It would have made me look very capable. Bully for me against my four-year-old kids. But it also would have deflated them because they couldn't keep up and would have stopped us having a great family time together. Thankfully, Becky helped me enjoy the better fruit of love. To enjoy the walk, grow as a family and build everybody up in their ability to walk. We had a great time. My knowledge just built a gap between me and others. Her love built everyone up. Do you see the difference? Paul wants the Corinthians straight away in this passage to think and understand there is better fruit in acting out of love for others than there is acting out of knowledge. There is better fruit in acting out of love for others than there is out of knowledge. He wants you to know this. Secondly, the second thing, if you click on, he wants people to see is the difference in worth of knowledge and love, in value of lo- knowledge and love. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if ever anyone loves God, he is known by God. Here, in verse 2, he actually scorns those who place confidence in value in what they know, in their head knowledge, stating that when they behave like this, any knowledge that they think they have is actually imaginary and misses a deeper point that God wants you to grasp. That the presence of love is what is truly valuable and worth something. Why? Because the presence of love, not the presence of knowledge, is the true evidence that God really knows that person. You know, just thinking about my wife again, like there People who know more about what Becky has on her CV, what she's done in her work life, than me. I've actually never read it, and I'm not sure I would understand it if I did read it, honestly. Like, there'll be things on there that I'm like, what? 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 They'll be in some kind of Dr. Latin. But it's totally foolish then to assume that because they have a greater knowledge of Becky's CV, that she knows and values them more than me, isn't it? To think like that is silly thinking. My committed marital love for Becky, on the other hand, reveals something far deeper than their knowledge. Even though there is lots I don't know about Becky, it shows that a relationship has formed in which both parties deeply know and value each other. That I am hers and she is mine. It shows I belong to her, that I'm precious to her and her to me. In the same way that Paul wants the Corinthians to think about the better fruit of acting in love, he also wants them to recognise that there is an ocean between the value we should place on knowledge being in somebody and the value we should place on love being in somebody, because love reveals so much more than knowledge reveals. Make sense? Sometimes Paul's so succinct because he's writing letters, you have to take a bit of time to unpack it. That's one of the places. But it's a huge point that could be overlooked. We have a a, a tendency in our culture to build a hierarchy based on what somebody knows, don't we? Say, they're better than him because they know this. He's an expert. He's not an expert. Trust him. Don't trust him. We see here a little bit of God's lens on Christianity, though, where the value is not placed on how much we know or how much we know how to be a great Christian, how much we've read about that, but whether there is love in our hearts for God that shows we have truly known the depth of love that he has for us, which is unfathomable love. God cares far more about people loving him than having a big knowledge about him. And asks us to value people in the same way. So these are the two things he has to think about. Knowledge and love and the gulf between the two. Then, he gives them a reality check. These guys who are diving in and acting out of their knowledge of grace. And he says this. And he asks to think, 9 to 13. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating... in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Can you just click on? He essentially shows them by acting out their right for freedom and on their greater knowledge, they're actually become three things, a stumbling block, something that causes others to fall down. One who gives courage to others, but courage for people to do wrong things, to go in the wrong direction to be going into danger you 're a satin after danger, and a destroyer of people. Wow, somebody who tears others down that 's what he 's saying look but more than this, the warning gets even deeper he 's saying that like by placing their value in the knowledge they have, above the love others have for God, they had missed completely that these people they were tripping up, encouraging away from faith in God, in destroying, were in fact brothers for whom Christ died. If you click on. Those who God had called his own. Their Their actions were in danger of actively destroying the relationship and trust that God had built in others. By focusing on the fact that these believers foolishly thought idols still had power or were making rules about what could and couldn't be done, they'd missed. that The very reason this issue was harming their conscience and causing toil for them was because they loved God, which was the evidence that God had started a relationship with them. You know, me and CB were having a chat about this passage the other day, and Chris recalled a time when he had seen a church leader... He was with in American context, scold people for questioning whether for, for questioning whether he should drink alcohol or not. Like he was having a glass of wine, and they said you shouldn't be doing that, and he scolded them in return because we were under grace. Because alcohol, you know, has no bearing on my salvation. Because you no, know, I'm free. All of the all of the things, the same the same knowledge, the same mature knowledge that he should have. And at one point, I would have been like, yeah, that's absolutely right, absolutely right. But in actual fact, by this passage, if Paul had seen this leader, he would have affirmed the leader's understanding of his freedom, but not his exertion of his right. And he would have said to him, look, the very reasons these Christians toil to work out this borderland issue is that Christ is at work in them. If he wasn't, they wouldn't care. They wouldn't have a conscience that was questioning whether it was right or not for God. They are your brothers. And rather than simply acting out of your greater understanding and doing something that leads to their guilt or maybe encourages unhealthy practices in them, recognize that these are God's loved people and act in a way that loves them and builds everyone up. Don't stride on ahead. You'll damage and discourage them. Undo, maybe, the good work that God has done in them. It's not that you don't teach them about freedom and grace and the power of God. That knowledge is good. It's that you recognize where other believers are at in their thinking and value them like God does. It's quite powerful stuff, isn't it? Quite powerful stuff. Well, lots of poor stuff. It takes a little bit of thinking to get your head around. But let it land. After highlighting these issues to them, Paul, who does not Uh, He does not hold back his punches, does he? Paul can only finish his discussion in one place, that acting out of knowledge without love in borderland issues is in fact sin, he says. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. In reality, he's saying that choosing to eat this food without regard for the effect this is having on others, is not taking ground for the kingdom. It's not advancing the kingdom of God in society, but actually attacking the kingdom you're trying to build that God has built in other people. You're actually attacking that kingdom that he is building in them by breaking down those who belong to God's kingdom on earth. You're actually at work with the enemy, he's saying. You're sinning. You're, You're part of that plan. That is really strong, isn't it? So ultimately, he says, you're working against Christ. To act out of knowledge without love for those who love Christ is to actively attack the kingdom of God. To act with knowledge without love for those who love Christ is to actively attack the kingdom of God. Paul is saying that these guys who are ploughing forward, claiming their right and freedom to eat what they like, are actually stopping the advance of the kingdom in the borderlands. But this is not the way to dive on in. And what does he teach us here as we summarise all of this about engaging with culture in our day? Well, what's really interesting is that Paul doesn't, give us a hard and fast rule, and he doesn't go from this place of saying not dive in to make rules. He doesn't say, like we were a child, do this or do that. He doesn't take us back to a legal system. He doesn't say run away. And he doesn't say dive in based on our knowledge of freedom. Instead, as we've seen, he totally affirmed the freedom and security that Christ has brought us into when engaging with cultures. You stand on scandalously safe ground in all you do. But it's not always best for the kingdom to claim your rights, to do whatever you want in any situation. And he starts to give us one of the three key rules of thumb. He says principles that should guide us in any decision about how we apply our freedom when we interact with wider cultures in the borderlands in our day, if we want to advance the kingdoms he wants us to. And the first principle is this. When you engage your culture with culture, you should always ask, is what I'm doing good for my brothers in Christ? Is it loving my brothers in Christ? Is it loving my brothers in Christ? Is it loving, in is it loving them into more of Christ? or could it cause them to stumble and be destroyed? Am I